Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. Delighted to be joined by Aoife O'Brien. Aoife, you're welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thanks so much, Susan. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Cool. Well, Aoife, you're the host of a podcast called Happier at Work. And I'm dying to know, are people happy at work? In a word, no. The stats show that only 15% of people globally are engaged at work. And really, that's that's one of the key metrics of being happy at work. And 85% of people globally, now the numbers vary slightly depending on what country you look at, but for the most part, people are not happy at work. And that's from the statistics side of things. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening who can relate to stories, anecdotes of people telling them all of their terrible stories around work and that they're not happy, especially during the pandemic. So that might've divided things a little bit where some companies have been really flexible and really treated their employees very well, a big focus on mental health and things like that. And other companies haven't really implemented proper ways to engage their staff and drive happier workplaces and I know certainly anecdotally some friends and some clients have spoken about how they've been treated during this pandemic and for the most part it hasn't been good. Really I get the sense when I go on to social media that companies have responded well. You you don't get a great sense that this has been an awful time for people but maybe that's just what I see. It could be. Yeah. And it depends on what you're exposed to on social media, I suppose. And there are examples. I don't want to say like that there is that everyone is having a miserable, miserable time at the moment. But I suppose if you think about it from the perspective that, yes, there are companies who are doing things right by their employees at the moment. There are people who have really, really got it right. There's been a huge focus on well-being at work since I've left corporate in the last you know, two and a half years or so. There's been this big shift I see towards mental well-being and there's a lot of companies really getting behind that. But I suppose on the other side, what are you actually seeing on social media and what are people sharing on social media? And that conflicts with what the numbers actually say about people's levels of engagement at work and whether or not they are actually enjoying. And Unfortunately, I think, Susan, a lot of people, what they do is they stay in jobs that they don't enjoy. They might complain about them, but they're not actually doing something about it. It's really disappointing to see that in a way, because I've always been of the opinion, if something's not working out for me, I'm going to walk away from it. 
I'm absolutely going to get out of that situation. And I have done. I left several permanent pensionables, as they call them over here in Ireland, you know, <laughs> um, this idea that you're going to be in a job for life. And well, if you're earning money and able to contribute to your pension, then why would you even think about leaving a job? But I think there is this big shift towards the knowledge that you can actually do something that you really enjoy and feel the sense of contribution to the world as well. Like, how am I helping to make the world a better place? And anytime someone says that they're not really sure about what it is that they want to do, I always ask them, what change do you want to see in the world? And for me, when I ask myself that question, it's changing the way we work. So I have been in situations in the workplace where it was just toxic, just a toxic environment. How do we protect workers from entering into that type of scenario? How do we help companies to make better decisions when it comes to hiring, to help them to retain staff, to create a better and more collaborative environment? But also, how do we match? Because something that suits me, Susan, might not suit you. So how do you find that match between a person and an organization? And for me, it really boils down to values and the importance of values. And if you had asked me a few years ago, like Aoife, what are your core values? I would have not had a clue. I knew that values were the corporate values they were kind of laughable if I'm honest because they weren't really reflected in the behavior so they talked about being open and yet there was a lot of closed office doors let's say people weren't open to receiving feedback so that's what I knew about values and since I've learned about my own core values my life starts making a lot more sense so I can see how I've made decisions in the past and After a recent conversation with a relative of mine around this idea of values, she sort of commented saying maybe you have particularly strong values. And I hadn't thought of that concept before, that maybe some people have really strong core values. And therefore, if someone goes against those values, so if I see things like unfairness in the workplace, if I see people who are um, being inauthentic, if I see something that I feel is really unjust, or if there's a lack of transparency, that really goes against my values. And therefore, I'm going to walk away from that situation if I can't change it. And maybe there are other people who have those same values, but maybe not to the degree or not to the strength that I have those values and therefore are not happy to stay in the situation, but they're not going to do anything about it. That's an interesting way of looking at it, but I suppose all of our values are ranked to suit us. So those people will have other values that if they're pushed, they're going to walk away from. And I think that's probably what it comes down to, because I would share similar values to you and I have walked away from situations because I feel people have been treated unfairly. Yeah. But I've also seen other people react to things that maybe I think, oh, well, that's okay. I don't mind that. So I guess we all have values that are important to us in different measures. That's it. And I wonder, like just, you know, having this conversation, is it is it that courage maybe is a is a value that both you and I have? And therefore we have the courage to walk away from that situation because it does take courage to get out of those. I walked away from from a high paying job when I was in Sydney to nothing basically. And it meant giving up a visa to to live there and to work there. And I walked away and I I spent a year traveling after that. Not everyone 
will be willing to do that, to take that chance that things will actually work out if you take action and if you make those changes that you feel that you should make. Yeah, so then I suppose the question is, does it really make a difference if you're happy at work? Maybe it's okay not to be. (laughs) Another great question. And going back to what I said earlier about this idea that like, well, work is work and it's a permanent pensionable and you go in and you earn your money and you come home at the end of the day. You get on with it. Yeah, you just get on with it. You suck it up, all of these kind of things. And I think that that type of attitude has definitely infiltrated. And maybe even when I started my career, I was very much of that opinion that, well, work is work. Having said that, I had some really enjoyable jobs in my career. But getting back to your question is, does it matter? Well, yeah, it does matter because people, you know, companies can be more profitable, they can be more productive, and you can retain your staff for longer. As an employer, you can get so much more from your staff. They're going to give their discretionary effort. They're going to meet the deadlines. They're going to um, stay longer hours. They're going to stay in your organization for longer. And the stats show as well, if you lose someone from an organization, especially if that person is quite in quite a senior role, that can cost you 200% of that person's salary. Just think about that. That's two years salary that you could lose by losing someone at a senior position. And even if that was someone in a relatively junior position and you just think, oh, well, you know, people are people, we can replace them. We can just get someone back. It's It's more than that. It's the knowledge that they're walking out with. And I know for myself, the role I had in Sydney, I left in less than a year and a half. They sponsored me. They paid for my visa. They paid a quite high salary. And in another role in Dublin, I left after four and a half years. But that's four and a half years of knowledge in a very complex organization that it takes at least a year to really get up to speed with. And I walked away with all of that knowledge and that's going to cost those organizations money. So if it's not just to create a better work environment and a happier world, because when you're happier at work, you're taking that home. And when you're miserable at work, you're taking that home. So it's more than that. It's actually contributing to the bottom line as well. If you can make more money by creating better work environment, you don't even have to invest that much money to create this better work environment. It's about making better decisions. If you can make more money by doing that, then to me, it's really a no brainer. Making better decisions, is that the missing ingredient of happiness in the workplace? What do you mean by better decisions? Better decisions around what? For me, it, it centers around people and it's about putting people first. And, you know, you'll have a lot of this talk around putting customers first and, and all of that stuff. But actually, the evidence shows if you put your staff first, and I know Richard Branson talks about this quite a lot. It's really about putting people first in the organization. Now, I take that a step further and I talk about using data to back up your decisions. So oftentimes we make decisions based on gut. It could be based on potentially flawed performance reviews and things like that, because really and there's evidence from Harvard Business Review. They've done studies around this like. How capable are we at, at uh, assessing other people's performance, essentially? We're yeah, not. We're, you know, we're not, exactly. We're not. We're much better at assessing our own. Are we even, you know, I might even question that as well. Are we well, even yeah. assessing our own performance? <laughs> <laughs> but, but we know what we're good at, probably. 
Yeah, I would question that as well, as in each other. Do we know what each other are good at? And I know certainly I've been in situations where I couldn't tell you really what other people on the team are good at, and they might not be even able to say the same about me. So it's using objective data to make better decisions, whether that's data that already exists in-house. So you're like, I think we have a retention issue. Let's have a look at that. And are the numbers telling us something from that? Is there a problem here? And then if there is a problem identified, then having a look at, well, what might be some of the key drivers of that? You know, maybe it could be caused by a specific department or a specific manager and start looking at that in more detail. But coming back to, to the point of it's it's really about, and I know you're into this as well, Susan, it's about putting people first. Whenever you make decisions, it's about thinking about people. And you can tell the difference between companies who, who tend to put their people first versus companies who don't. It's, it's do you view people as just objects and this is a machine or a robot that I've hired to do a task versus treating people like human beings? And it's, it's really putting the human back into the workplace. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. But maybe we can just pay them more. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And the thing is, money, I don't have the stats uh, to hand. But let's say it's the law of diminishing returns. So you need to pay them enough money so that money doesn't become an issue. So pay them enough so that they feel like they are getting paid fairly. Now, that might mean different things to different people. I know certainly in my own experience, if I know that someone who's at a more junior level to me is getting paid more, that is really frustrating. And if I find out about it in a roundabout way or by accident that's highly frustrating and that demotivates me and let's face it people talk about salaries I know they're not supposed to quote unquote you're not supposed to talk about your salaries you're not supposed to share those details but certainly in a lot of organizations I've worked in people speak I won't say openly because some people are very cagey about how much they earn um but you know people find out how, how much other people earn so you pay people enough to take money off the table and then you create an environment where they can really live up to their full potential. They can see the impact that they're having and that that impact that they're having is in line with the change that they want to see in the world. They can witness around them the behaviors that align with their own core values. Those values are embodied by the leadership. They are rewarded. And anything that goes against those values is reprimanded in some way. I was going to say publicly reprimanded, but I mean in a in a nice way, like that you you're not taking someone down, but you just you're making it very clear that that the kind of behavior that is acceptable in the organization and the kind of behavior that's not. And, and I know that ties in a lot with what you talk about, Susan, in relation to having tough conversations, because those conversations are hard to have. They are really, really tough. And I was in touch with a client recently and she's having this issue where she's being very badly bullied at work. She thought it was an issue with imposter syndrome. She is a woman in an engineering field and yeah, it's, it's not an issue with imposter syndrome. It's other people are bullying her and telling her she's not good enough and she can't do it. And a lot of that stems from her boss. And the backstory around the boss is that he's been moved from department to, to department because each department wants to get rid of him and they're just moving him on to the next department and he is leaving a trail of destruction in his wake. And you can imagine the kind of toxic environment that that is creating. She is coming to me and saying, 
I think I have imposter syndrome and it's not imposter syndrome at all. It's a toxic work environment. She can't go to her manager because her manager is the cause of it. She has brought him to HR on a number of occasions. I'm not sure what the next step is for her. It's not my area of expertise. Uh, could she go to the Workplace Relations Commission, for example, if nothing changes? Or, or could she just leave the situation? Because who wants to work in that kind of environment? Nobody. But, you know, here in the UK, the inquiry into Priti Patel and bullying at work, the minister, it's like, well, we didn't see it happen. So therefore, we're going to live with the outcome. I saw somebody tweeting, I feel for every single person who's ever been bullied at work or at school and nobody believed them because this is really what this is saying. And I think, where is the tipping point, Aoife, to turn this on its head? Yeah. Because that seems to be the norm. It's really disappointing, isn't it? And I have had that experience and it was silent bullying. It was someone who was completely ignoring me, someone who used to be a friend and completely blanked me in the corridor. This is someone who I had to work with. So it was very difficult and awkward situation in my 30s, I might add. So this is not it's not as if we were early 20s or anything like that, which is still inexcusable. But Maybe it's about voicing these things, because at the time I didn't really know who I could turn to. I certainly spoke about it in my exit interview. And I said, as an add on, by the way, FYI, you should know that this this is happening. I think this was a personal issue as opposed to someone who is generally a bully. But for me, we turned that work environment into a toxic place. I didn't want to be there because I didn't want to have to deal with being blanked at work. I just thought it was It was childish, but it was also very insulting. It was very hurtful. And it's about getting it on the table, isn't it? It's about openly speaking, but having having advocates. So having people speak up on other people's behalf, because when you're in that situation, it's very difficult and you're very emotional. So it's about knowing who can you turn to? Is there someone who you can speak to about this? It's about, um, I was going to say, having people on your side, But it's more about having advocates and if someone witnesses something that they get involved. It's this age old thing as well, isn't it? When you're a kid and you're being bullied and we were always pulled up. If if someone is not saying anything, then they are part of the problem. So if you witness something, then you need to speak up about it. But as organizations, as leaders, how do we facilitate that? And who can you actually turn to? And coming back to to this male leader, he is the problem. He is the bully. But his boss is not doing anything about that, from what I can see. If I was in that situation, to be perfectly honest, I would just get out of there and I would write about it on Glassdoor and say, this is a toxic environment. Don't even dream about going into work there. But that's going to cost that organization money by having someone like they think, oh, we're, we're keeping this guy on. We don't want to we don't have big hullabaloo, but actually it's going to cost them more money in the long run through lost productivity, through absences, through people leaving the organization. It's crazy, really. And I suppose there's an element of having psychological safety in an organization where people feel it's OK to speak up and speak yeah. out. But that has to come from the top, Aoife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely agree. And I think to me, psychological safety is fundamental. And sometimes it's almost a given. And it's creating this 
this environment of psychological safety. And I think, Susan, everything that you do in an organization needs to come from the top. So when you are trying to understand your values, it's from the top, it's like, well, what kind of organization are we trying to, to create here? And you need to get buy-in from everyone in that organization. So they need to contribute what their values are and what they see and what, what they think is important in the workplace. But especially when it comes to this, the, the likes of psychological safety. And, and I think it, that ties in nicely with being vulnerable at work. And if you can be vulnerable, and I see this, and I, I was going to say it's, it's got very trendy now, but I mean that a lot more people are doing it. I don't mean like, oh, this is a big trend and it's going to go away. I think more and more people are starting to see the benefits of being vulnerable at work. And it Previously, it was like you hide your emotions. You have to be really strong, especially if you're a leader, because the team are turning to you to provide solutions. Whereas now it's okay to say, well, how are you coping during lockdown? Actually, things aren't going great. I've had this problem and that problem. And it's okay to do that. And when you witness someone in a senior leadership position being that vulnerable and being honest and being human, let's face it, then it gives the okay for other people to be more human at work and to share their own issues and to share their own vulnerabilities. And that in itself creates psychological safety. And when you have an environment of psychological safety, it builds trust within the organization and people feel free then to, to call out when things are not aligned with their values or when they see someone being bullied or when they see something going on. And maybe it's from the leadership as well, an ongoing message of this is what's acceptable, this is what's not acceptable, and reiterating that message again and again and again. Because I know certainly when I started in an organization and I was working on a specific project and I was away in a room working silently because I needed to get on with it. And this guy basically barged into my room and said, listen, um, the way it's, it's all been done in the past has been really bad and you need to make sure that it's good this time. And here's some suggestions for you. I didn't know this guy from Adam. I was still new into the organization, but I, I was like, well, am I supposed to listen to him or am I supposed to not listen to him? He's basically bad mouthing anyone who's ever created this presentation in the past. And he's asking me to, to make it right. And I could see where he was coming from. And the brief that I was given was, here's what we've done in the past to make it better in retrospect it wasn't really a solid brief at all and so here's him coming in with some some really great suggestions but like I found out later through working with him he's an absolute and utter bully and he's a compulsive liar and when something like that happens and you're like I'm not sure who I'm supposed to talk to about this or who can I actually turn to it's it, maybe it is a case of reinforcing these are the behaviors that are acceptable. These are the behaviors that are not. We do welcome novelty in this organization. We don't welcome bullying. And this is what bullying actually looks like. So it comes in many, many guises. Conscious that we've gone on a bit of a ramble about bullying, which was totally unintentional, but that's okay. <laughs> it also contributes to an unhappy workplace. And it's people that are at work, right? Yeah. And we tend to think at work that everything people related is in the domain of HR. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that is something that needs to be burst wide open. Really, yeah, yeah, as yeah, far totally as I, that's what I think. It's everybody's job yes. to make people happy at work. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And having spoken with several HR people in the last few months, uh, 
I do find that it managers tend to think that's HR's problem or that's a HR issue. Let's go to HR about that. And, you know, managers need to start taking more responsibility and they can look at the numbers. It's all anonymized, but if it was for, for team related stuff, then they could look at team level information and see well what's going on within the team but yeah managers and individual contributors as well they everyone needs to take responsibility and it is about thinking about other people I suppose and and really putting the focus back on treating other people how and I, I heard of this thing recently and I had heard of it but it's it's come up a few times in the last few weeks the golden rule versus the platinum rule so the golden rule being treat others how you would like to be treated and the platinum rule being treat others how they would like to be treated. It's really thinking about that and it's getting rid of the sarcasm, the snarky comments and um, what you might think is kind of innocent and playful talk. Actually, that could be quite hurtful as well. So it's it's being professional, but treating people like humans as well. And one of the things in the Gallup survey that they use to to measure this engagement, one of them is I have a best friend at work. And and we took this Gallup survey in uh, in one of the roles that I was in. And we thought, who has a best friend at work? We thought, oh, it's very American and we don't always have best friends at work. And it's not like that. But I think what they were trying to get to was that you have someone in work who you can confide in. And that makes a huge difference because it's someone who's in a similar situation, who understands, who knows the people involved. It's, it's, it's just being able to vent and get something off your chest. And it, I know for me, it, it made a huge difference when I was able to talk about what's going on at work with people who know the people who I'm, I'm speaking about. So I think that makes a big difference as well. And it all ties in with this element of trust and psychological safety and creating that environment and knowing when you don't have that environment, like what are the telltale signs that things might be a little bit toxic or things are not really as you imagine they would be. And sometimes leaders are not close enough to what's going on on a day-to-day basis to really know, but it's, I suppose it's being able equally for managers to manage upwards and to explain what's actually going on. So coming back to this point, it's about everyone taking responsibility for creating a better work environment. And it's not just about, oh, well, HR are going to implement this program or HR are going to run this wellness thing. Oh, I suppose we better go along to it. It's about bringing that element into everything that you do. And I suppose something that we haven't touched on, Susan, is if you create happier workers they in turn are going to create happier customers so if people are happier at work they're going to treat the customers better and and you're going to make more money from that you know that ties in with this profitability but ultimately if people are happy at work you're going to make more money because people will want to use your services again or buy your products again and they'll also recommend their friends to come and work there or their family or whoever it is will be a huge advocate for your company and The more people who want to work in your organization for the right reasons, the bigger pool of candidates that you will have for any jobs that you advertise as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You have this podcast, as we said, Happier at Work. Have you interviewed people who can say that they are happy at work or who have been in workplaces that are happy? At this stage, I've interviewed, I think, about 50 people, something like that, for the podcast. And there have been some people. I don't tend to focus on individuals. I tend to focus on consultants, HR people. And 
some of the consultants that I have spoken with, they are huge advocates for being happier at work. And it's interesting. I um, I ran a survey uh, a couple of months ago to get feedback on the podcast from listeners. You know, what do you think? And one of the pieces of feedback was that everyone agrees with what I say. And I tend to have people on who are in alignment with what it is that I have to say. And they sort of caveated that with um of course, you're not going to you're hardly going to invite people on who have massively dissenting opinions. But I thought that's an interesting concept that if I got someone on who maybe was miserable at work or who didn't buy into this concept and we had a conversation. But I suppose it's not my job to convince people that creating happier workplaces to me, that's an education piece. That's not why I'm here. I am here to help people who believe that already, who believe that it's important to put people first, who believe that we can create these happier workplaces wherever it's not dependent on industry that we can actually do that it's my job to facilitate that and to help them to take those steps in order to change their organization or if they already have happy workplace that it can be even happier so knowing that there's always room for improvement and this idea of making small changes to have long-term impact and and much much bigger results by making small tweaks to what it is that you're doing and changing things up but also looking at what you're doing measuring it ongoing and having a look at the impact of what you're already doing so what is the impact that that's having when it comes to people what does the engagement look like how does that change when you introduce a new program for example there's lots and lots of things to be said for for creating happier workplaces for sure yeah. And interviewing someone that's unhappy at work, it's not like they'd be advocating for an unhappy workplace to remain. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Aoife, like, how do you make workplaces happier? Well, for me, it's uh, based on the research that I did for my dissertation, which I completed in the summer during lockdown, which was a, a real treat. Um, I, I looked at... Uh, this concept of fit. It was based on a conversation I had with one of my lecturers about the situation that I described in Sydney. And she said, oh, that sounds like a real issue around workplace fit. And I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. So I started researching it straight away and I, I based a lot of my essays on it. And then I went on to do my dissertation, my own primary research on this concept of fit. And the specific type I looked at was person environment fit. And what this means is looking at values alignment, needs satisfaction and abilities, your abilities to meet the demands of the role, essentially. And if you think about work today and have a look on any job search websites, what we require is X number of years of experience and you need to have X, Y, Z skills to back that up. And I know you'll agree with me on this, like skills and experience are pretty meaningless, experience especially x number of years of experience it really depends on on the types of experiences that you've had and i think the more you fail to you know quote unquote fail i don't really you know i'm not a huge fan of that word but the more you fail the more you learn how to handle situations and I, i think you learn more from your mistakes is basically what i'm trying to say rather than when things go well we often don't take time to reflect when things go well, we have a bigger tendency to, t- to reflect when things don't go so well. What could I potentially do differently the next time? So 
that's how we currently recruit. It's how we describe jobs. Careers are seen as very linear, but they're not they're not linear at all. And a lot of people listening will know that they're not careers are not linear, but they're projected in this way. That actually has a very low impact on whether or not you fit in at work. And the things that have the bigger impact are the values alignment. So making sure that as an organization, you know what your core values are. And then when you're hiring someone, you hire someone whose values align with yours. How you do that is you can do it through interviews. You can do it through surveys and really ascertaining what are the values that already exist in the team that I'm hiring for, in the manager that I'm hiring under and ascertaining what are the values of the candidates who are interviewing for this role? We could have a whole other conversation about the job application process and how flawed it is, but that's for another day. The thing with values is, and this was a really interesting part of the research, that if you can show someone how their needs are being satisfied at work, then that really underlines the importance of values and it shows people how their values are aligned with an organization. So, so I'll give an example. The need, the three basic psychological human needs that we have are based on self-determination theory. The three needs are autonomy, relatedness, and competence. Autonomy is this concept that we get to choose what we do and how we do it. Relatedness then is how we relate to other people in that organization. It's a sense of belonging that we have. Now, didn't form part of the research I did, but I always like to include that it's how we relate what we do on a day-to-day basis to the bigger picture of what the organization is trying to achieve. And then competence is the, the third element of that. And that is feeling capable of doing your job. And moreover, I think it's important to get feedback. So when you're delivering feedback to people, it's it's not dumbing down the negative, but it's setting clear, really clear expectations as to what is expected in this role. And then when someone is performing well, providing really great, valuable feedback and, and letting people know the impact that they're having mm-hmm. as well. They are the, the three basic universal needs. There are other unique needs. I didn't research them as part of my dissertation, but the other needs might be things like status, power, recognition, For me, recognition is a big one and recognition can be something as simple as just saying thanks. You know, some people need that and other people don't. And again, I'd love to research whether that is in fact a universal need. Does everyone need to be recognized? I'm not sure. It hasn't been proven that it is, but it's definitely something I would love to look into in more details. Those needs are universal. Everyone has them. People might have them to different degrees and you can over and under supply those needs. And that's the other important thing. So an oversupply of autonomy is a lack of the proper guidance that you need in order to do your role. And an undersupply of autonomy is, is micromanagement, essentially. So someone is telling you, this is how I do it. This is how you should do it. This is how I want it to be done. And you need to do it the way I feel it should be done rather than giving them control over how, how it gets done. An oversupply of competence might be you're just getting bored and complacent and you could do the the job in your sleep. There's no challenge there. An undersupply then could relate back to imposter syndrome when you feel like maybe you're not good enough at at doing something. And then relatedness, and this is an interesting one. And 
the way I see relatedness is having enough relatedness means that you feel this sense of belonging with the other people in the organization. But if there's too much, then maybe people form cliques, which can lead to exclusion. It can lead to bullying and, and things like that. But getting that piece right and being able to have those conversations, and sometimes there might be difficult conversations, being able to have those conversations at work to ascertain where people's needs are being met and where they're not being met. Now, if we think about the pandemic specifically, people's need for autonomy might be in oversupply, but they're not necessarily getting enough guidance. They're not getting enough check-ins with their manager and things like that. And I know certainly there's other extreme examples where they're required to have their Zoom on all day so their manager can check that they're at their desk. Now, really, like that is, <laughs> how does that make you feel that if you want to take a, a two minute, three minute toilet break and you step away from your Zoom, you need to explain to your manager what you're doing away from your desk. So it's being able to have those conversations, understanding as an individual what your needs are, where they're being met, where they're not being met. And as a manager, being confident enough and to be open about having those conversations. Again, going back to this idea that it's it's in the remit of HR, it's not. It's it's really up to every individual to understand themselves, to have that level of self-awareness and to have the courage to have those conversations. That's fascinating. When you were talking about having your Zoom on all day, I could feel myself just kind of, you know, coming yeah. up, going, oh my God. But <laughs> they also that need to control Yes. Yeah. That's an oversupply. Yes. Yeah. 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 What can you do? There's options. You can walk away. You can have a difficult conversation, but ultimately that, that rests with the manager and their need, like you said, Susan, their need for control. You could debate this all day, whether it goes back to childhood issues and they need to have control over everything in their life. And there are some people who are like that. Um, equally, there are other people who just totally laissez-faire and oh, just get on with it. And that's not good enough either. Um, both are bad. The kind of controlling is probably slightly worse. The undersupply of autonomy is slightly worse. And in all cases, the undersupply tends to be a little bit worse than the oversupply. But equally, they are both bad situations. And what can you do? Like it's take it a, a case by case basis and uh, how is your manager going to react if you start saying, actually, I think you're micromanaging me. I have been micromanaged in the past. It's a pretty horrific situation. I didn't handle it very well. I was old enough and bold enough to know better. And I rebelled against it. I did speak to a leader about it. But again, it was this situation in Sydney where it was, let's say, an issue of poor leadership overall. <laughs> and so nothing was really done about it. And in the end, I, I just left that situation. Mm. Gosh, because you're dealing with people and we're messy yeah. and we're like, yeah, we're irrational. We think we think we are rational, but we're not. And I read a book not too long ago, The Chimp Paradox. I don't know if you've read I've read it. that. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's basically the chimp is in control most of the time. That's our emotions. And we think we're these rational beings. But actually, if something hurts us in some way, then we're going to revert back to chimp mode, who is like this six year old self or whatever. And you're going to make decisions based on emotion rather than based on rationally, like a, like a human or like a computer. You know, I'm not saying that we, we should all be computers and, and make decisions in that way. But oftentimes we think we're very rational when actually, in fact, we're making decisions based on emotion. If, if you're going to an interview for a new job, yeah. how could you ascertain whether or not you might be happy in this new role? 
Are there questions you can ask? We can take it, I suppose, for a few different uh, perspectives. As an individual, I think it's your responsibility to understand what your own core values are. And that might sound like a daunting task, but if you think of it like this, knowing what really bothered you in previous roles, there might be some things that you really liked. There might be some things that really annoyed you. Like for me, fun is one of my core values. I like to have fun. And I don't know, can everyone say that? I don't know. Some people are quite serious. I always like to have fun. And some of the things that I did like in work were the fun type of things. I'm always nice to have a bit of fun. And it's one I of like, my core values as well. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I like to have a laugh and I like to make sure that I have a laugh every day, whether that's popping onto YouTube and looking at clips from Curb Your Enthusiasm and Peep Show and and things like that. Like that's, it just gets me a good belly laugh and it's, I I really, really enjoy it. But if you can bring that into the workplace and just have fun, but, but equally fun means different things to different people as well. So it's really understanding what your core values are and write them out and be really clear. When I first did this exercise, I had like 25 or 35 core values. You can probably group some of them together into, well, what are my top ones? What are really important to me? Things like authenticity for me. I don't like fakeness. I don't like things that are fake. I don't like um, hypocrisy hypocrisy yeah yeah you're saying one thing and actually you're doing a completely opposite thing yeah that's that's a very good point because that's exactly what happened in Sydney they made a lot of promises to me they didn't live up to those promises and um yeah that really did not gel with me well at all so really understanding your own core values and then being able to ask questions to ascertain whether this would be a good fit for you and really understanding what's the kind of environment that you're going into and I, I suppose if you think about the job interview situation, like it's kind of thought to be quite fake. And as a candidate, you're trying, you're, I don't want to say you're desperate for a job, but oftentimes you're like, I really, really want this job. And I'm going to say anything that's going to get me the job, but that's, that's not going to serve you well in the end, because if you're miserable, then it's, it's going to have consequences, but equally the employers might be desperate to fill the role and they need to get someone quickly. So they're going to say, oh yeah, it's a wonderful place to work here and we're so delighted to have you and whatever. But I suppose the onus is on both sides to be really honest about the situation and be like, listen, we have had a bit of turnover in the team, but we know about it and we're going to address it and this is what we're doing, X, Y, Z. And from the candidate's perspective, be really honest about it. It's not so much your skills. And I I think the focus needs to to come away from the skills and more on the values that you bring. You can learn new skills. And oftentimes in an organization, they have very unique systems that you need to get up to speed with anyway. So it's about highlighting your own core values and being able to ask questions of that organization to ascertain, well, what are the core values within the team, with the manager? How does the manager like to manage? How think about how you like to be managed? How does the manager respond to feedback? What kind of culture is it generally in the organization? What kind of things do you look for? Or like, but think about what it is that you you actually want to get from work and ask those questions and and being really honest with yourself as well, because I've done it before where I've sort of jumped in desperate for a job. I've been traveling for a year. I need the money. I'm gonna take this. And I didn't really take the time to think about what what I really, really wanted and and what role that job plays in the bigger picture of my career and, and the steps that I want to take to get there, I suppose. So, yeah, it's really about understanding yourself. What are your needs? How do you like to be recognized? You can ask, what's the leadership like? And 
ask about things like vulnerability, make it hard for them, get them thinking if they're the kind of things that, that are important to you, make them work for it. And by asking really insightful questions like that, it, it will change their perception of you as well. So, you know, having done lots and lots of interviews myself, interviewing candidates for roles, the ones that really stand out are the ones who've taken the time to really understand what the business is all about and ask really insightful questions and relevant questions, not just your average like, oh, and when could I start and what's salary and those kind of things. But it's thinking more about how how will I as an individual fit into this organization? Mm-hmm. When you were talking there, it reminded me of that phrase, marry in haste, repent at leisure. Oh, yeah. yeah, And it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? If you jump into a job, you know, then, yeah, you're going to spend the next while regretting it. Yeah, but that's it. But it doesn't even have to get to the interview stage, I suppose, Susan. You can do research. Like companies should have this stuff on their website. They're not going to paint a terrible picture on their website. They're going to paint a, a really positive picture. But it's about reading between the lines and trying to get a feel for What's the day-to-day like in that organization? How often will you meet with your manager? What's important to you? What I suppose, what's the onboarding process? Because part of what turned up on this research was that the first three years are really crucial for fit. Wow. So oftentimes we have like, what, a six-month onboarding or a nine-month onboarding or something like that. And then people are sort of let off. Well, they're, they're pretty much let off into the wild from day one anyway. But if you can focus on this concept of fit and and aligning values and making sure that people feel like they belong and that their needs are being satisfied for the first three years in an organization then the this idea of commitment and loyalty sort of kicks in after that amount of time and they're more likely to stay longer interesting Mm. three years is a long time it is a long time yeah yeah but early stage in any job longer than three years yeah yeah I've been sort of three and a half years four and a half years max yeah um but if you can hold on to people for longer as we discussed earlier in the conversation you can save more money by not losing them essentially and it could be that it takes three years before you really think you really know what an organization is like and you really think this is not aligning with my values and this is going against what I really feel in my gut and I I want to get out of here but if you can spend those three years reinforcing that they're in the right place that their values align with this organization that they're having their needs satisfied at work and you know, if you can focus on that for the first three years, then you will have people who want to stay in your organization for a long time, if you can get it right at the hiring stage. So, yeah. So then maybe one of the questions to ask as well is what's the turnover like in this organization? Yes, that's a yeah, very good point. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. what are the turnover two. metrics? What's yeah, what's the attrition? There could be other other kind of pertinent questions related to that because there really are telltale signs aren't but they? you'll also get the reaction I mean if they're trying to hide you'll yeah. know straight away uh, but if they can be honest about it as well and say actually yeah we we do have a problem with turnover we know about it and we're doing something to address it and so long as people are willing to admit that rather than like oh a really shocked face and oh no there's no problem with turnover here that's to me that's a red flag and you need to be aware of these things and employment is going to be a funny thing going forward because there's a lot of unemployment there's a lot of people furloughed there's a lot of people who don't have jobs at the moment and there's people who will be going back to roles you know it's 
But there's also those people who are continuing to work and who know that they're not in the right place. And they're like, this has given me time to think about my life and what everything means and, and given more meaning to it. And actually, I've decided I want to leave this role, but now is not the right time because of COVID. But actually, COVID's not going anywhere anytime soon. So now is the time to do that. So on the one hand, you'll have a lot of jobs opening because people will decide that they want something different. And on the other hand, it's like it might be a struggle to find something different because how many jobs are actually out there? Okay, that... We could talk forever, I think. Oh, we could. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll definitely have you on again another time because there's yeah. a couple of other areas that we really good to explore. Yeah. But for now, how does somebody contact you, Aoife, or get in touch with you? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you go to happieratwork.ie, so that's the domain for Ireland, you'll find everything there. You'll find me on LinkedIn, Aoife O'Brien, and I'll spell this out because it's A O I F E O'Brien. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Aoife. That was a brilliant conversation. I loved it, Susan. I like likewise, I think we could we could sit and even after 24 hours, we wouldn't have exhausted the topics that we can talk about. So I thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers.